This episode of The Energy Pipeline is sponsored by Caterpillar Oil & Gas. Since the 1930s, Caterpillar has manufactured engines for drilling, production, well service, and gas compression. With more than 2,100 dealer locations worldwide, Caterpillar offers customers a dedicated support team to assist with their premier power solutions. The Energy Pipeline is your lifeline to all things oil and gas, to drill down deep into the issues impacting our industry. From the frack site to the future of sustainability, hear more about industry issues, tools, and resources to streamline and modernize the future of oil and gas. Welcome to the Energy Pipeline. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of the Energy Pipeline. It's me, your host, Jordan Yates. And today I'm joined with Eric Pomrenke. Eric has a very interesting background all the way up in Alaska. And he, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to tell it, Eric, I want, I want you to get into it. Why, why is your background so interesting? Our episode is called From Gold Mines to Power Lines. Can you elaborate what we're talking about? Oh, I guess, yeah. Well, I've been uh, I've been in Alaska here for the majority of my life, so uh, going on uh, over 30 years. So the first 20 years were spent in Nome, Alaska, and uh, grew up there as a kid, graduated high school there, very small town, 4,500 people, and uh, went from my, running my dad's gold mine um, out of high school uh, for a number of years to moving into a job at the power plant, the local power plant. And um, they actually prototype and tested some of the largest cat generators uh, out there. Uh, First 3516B in North America and the highest time 3616 at 720 RPM in North America. And so I got my start there in the powerhouse, which had basically everything from the early 30s all the way to the most modern high-tech gear. So I got to learn a lot of uh, the ins and outs of that stuff there in the Gnome Powerhouse. And then through our prototype programs with CAT, um, got to know the local dealer, NC Machinery, really well. And uh, came to a point in my life when it was uh, a good time to maybe move out of Gnome. And uh, NC helped me make that transition. I moved down to Anchorage, Alaska, uh, of course, the biggest city in Alaska, and uh, moved right into a service supervisor's role, anywhere from 11 to 20-some guys all over the state, their logistics, um, everything they do, from their tools to where they stay to who picks them up at the airport, um, how they get there, um, helping them through everything once they're there. So that was my start with CAT. And then in 2010, um, a position opened up, uh, a new position, which was to be the power systems rental uh, rental sales rep. And they'd never had anybody in that position before. So we took what was a relatively small fleet, less than 20 generators, and in a matter of no time flat, 
grew that into, um, I think our peak is 155. We're in the 125 unit range right now, but um, encompassing all over the state. So um, everywhere from the Arctic Circle and above to the Arctic Ocean, where people go to the North Pole to explore, all the way out to the tip of the Aleutian chain, um, you know, where World War II happened and, and the Japanese invaded. So we cover a massive district and... Uh, I've been doing that and enjoying that for a number of years. So that kind of sums up how I got to where I'm at. That's a, a really awesome detailed kind of journey that you went on. I, I think in our exchanges to get you to this point, we were sent some pictures of polar bears. Um, where where were those at? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, polar bears are only going to be found up by the uh, Arctic Ocean. So anywhere on the northern tip of Alaska, if you're looking for that ice cap, which, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we have a branch about uh, 10, 15 miles away from that frozen ocean. Um, you'll find those polar bears coming off that ice cap, wandering along the beach. They typically stay in that northern tip region up by Barrow and Prudhoe Bay, but um, very rare to see them anywhere south. But one time uh, in my early 20s, there was actually a polar bear that rode a, uh, w- rode a whale carcass in the ocean, ended up about... <laughs> 20 miles south of Nome, kind of a sad story. And the poor thing started making its way up the coast, trying to get back up to the north. The only problem there was the town of Nome in the in the middle of there. So that poor bear kind of charged a crowd and didn't make it past there. But Aww. other than that, you only see those bears way up north. So and and they do occasionally try to break in a place or two. So there's a lot of graphic uh, photos of of bears coming through windows and. You got to be just ultra careful on the slope. Most of the facilities have what's like a bear cage. So kind of like a dog kennel that you go into before you actually exit the facility, give you a chance to look around. Um, And uh, last year when I was up on the slope, yeah, there was bear tracks in the snow. I actually had our our good uh, North America gas rep, Cody Seaman, on board. And uh, yeah, they showed us some pictures. We saw some tracks. um, Yeah, it happens. Polar bears are real. I I only will believe it when I see it. <laughs> but it's it's crazy the different work conditions that we have to deal with, like down here in Texas versus up there. Like it, it feels like worlds apart. I I remember when I was younger, we went camping and there was like just regular bears in the area, and my little brother was like can we hug the bears? And my mom was like, honey, no, no, the, the bears are not friendly. They're not teddy bears. They're real bears. But I couldn't imagine having to have that in the background on a daily basis. Like that's, that's a very interesting, um, difference, I guess that we have. I don't, I, I guess geographically. Uh, so thanks for, for sharing that story with us. Um, So something that we have to ask a little bit about, because I think that your family show is pretty popular. Can you tell us a little bit about your decision from going from your family's gold mining background and the show Bering Sea Gold to making the transition out of there? Um, so my family's been gold miners since I was young. My dad moved. He was actually a technician for a large construction company. And and all around where this company was based were all these gold mines. There still is today. And uh, just 
tons of impressive operations, lots of lots of gold that you just seen flowing. So my dad, um, he would work a 12, 14, or 16-hour day, and then after work, he actually found a, a bulldozer on the side of the road that had been there for a decade or longer, and he was able to procure that and get it running. He built his own wash plant, and then so every night after work, he would be out up the creek and actually gold mining. So my dad's been gold mining for over 45 years, so just a natural place. He actually just retired this summer. It's his first official summer off. He'll still He's still always working, but uh, that's kind of how he got his start, and so it was just natural to help him. And my little brother who's on the show, um, he's been in mining his whole life too. Um, I have a large family and uh, stuff like health insurance and things like that kind of drove me to a more traditional <laughs> traditional lifestyle. I do plan on going back and gold mining when I retire. And uh, I'm pretty sure there's a spot in the family business for me anytime I want. But uh, they're doing really well up there. My brother, I'm, I'm not sure how he does it. He's got the original ocean backhoe dredge, the Christine Rose. He's in taken over the Myrtle Irene, which is one of the other largest dredges. He has the family operation, which he bought now, and then he's also taken on the largest open pit gold mine operation in Nome. He's been working around the clock since January and uh, is running that. So now he has access to pretty much all the patented mining claims around Nome that aren't native owned. And so... Yeah, they just continue to go and grow, and my dad's trying to figure out how to occupy himself in retirement, which involves watching grandkids the last couple go-arounds. But, uh, yeah, the family business grows going strong and, and doing well, even with the price of fuel up there is, I think, seven fifty or eight fifty a gallon. And uh, parts, everything has to be flown in wow. or barged in. So no stores. So that's one thing the family's good at. They can make things that a lot of people buy. And so come up with fixes. So mining's, uh, mining's doing good for them. That's so fun. Um, I guess Alaska starts had that association up there with, you know, the the gold, the the stunning landscapes, but not always with the oil and gas industry. Um, and obviously this is an energy podcast. So I'm curious if you could shed a little bit of light on how the industry operates in Alaska and how it's contributing to the state's energy needs. Yeah, um, you know, Alaska's uh, critical for uh, oil production and supply for America and the world. Um, we run a huge, it's it's a huge, uh, a huge sector of our overall economy. And so it, of course, fluxes and, and goes. We, Alaska for the oil companies is a little more challenging for them to mm -hmm. say, start the process of a well and actually drill the well and put it into produ production, you could be talking years and years in Alaska where, say for the instance, the Bakken in North Dakota, they could be 30 days from 
when they drill that first hole to producing. So we deal with a lot of regulations and, you know, that's because Alaska is, you know, a vast, beautiful place. There's a lot of regs that go along with that. So typical time from beginning to actual production is long in Alaska. Um, And so they deal with a lot of those various things. So we have some large oil plays that are really coming into, into scope right now. Um, ConocoPhillips, has um, what will be their lar- largest uh, find and largest uh, oil production facility going in um, called Willow. And that starts next season. So uh, that involves a ton of ice roads, only accessible via ice from the end of January to the end of April. So basically wow. they haul in a year's worth of supplies, fuel, components, drill rigs. It all goes in nonstop. And uh that's one of the biggest plays, and uh, we are working for that. We are currently Caterpillar powered. The first five years are going to be all cat powered. Um, the first powerhouse is a 16 megawatt, 13.8 powerhouse, and then we have a 10 megawatt coming in right behind that for drilling. A um, bunch of smaller units, C18 500kW twin packs, a lot of rental gear that's already out there and, and staging for work. And uh, so we're prepared to help them there. And uh, solar power, solar turbines will p- provide the permanent power. So pretty much cat, cat housed all the way around. So, and what we have right now is we have this crazy world we're in. We have this, which is just a massive, massive development. And at the same time, we have another company that's been in the works for many years, actually kicking off, putting in their production facilities mirrored at the same time with Conoco. So um, we are working with the Santos Oil and Gas, who is also partnered with Repsol, a Spanish oil company, and we're going to provide all the power for them and and until their turbines get up. So one to two years will be uh, temporary power, 3516s, tier four final at 13.8, same as Conoco. Um, we're going to provide them uh, power, uh, one, one and a half megawatt load banks and full support. And so we're helping with all the integration on all aspects for both of those projects. So along with the traditional oil and gas that's already gone and and laid out, um, those are primarily up north is our biggest plays. The Kenai Peninsula has a long-standing oil field uh, platforms in our right outside of Anchorage, oil platforms, drilling facilities across Cook Inlet, some on this side. So we, we have a bit going on there in the Kenai, but the majority of it's up north on that Arctic Circle above and the Arctic Ocean, um, all kind of there. So, so that's Sounds what's like happening, uh, happening there. Yeah. It sounds like a very intriguing operation. Like it's so specific, like you said, you just have to haul all of that equipment within a certain set of months throughout the year. I I couldn't imagine because everything here feels so accessible, even with different supply chain issues, but to be taken down from 12 months to only a few of the availability to get there. Like that's so intense. Um, With a lot of that seeming to be more front of mind of just your typical day-to-day operations seem so much more complex than many other areas. 
How much room does that leave for thinking about things like sustainability and environmental stewardship? Like, is that still at the forefront or would you say that like it sometimes isn't the first thing you're thinking about with how intense just getting set up can be? Oh, um, if anybody's ever been on the slope, um, they would see that, yes, the environment, safety, um, taking care of the environment's number one. You're, you're not allowed to use the restroom outside. You couldn't go do your thing anywhere out there. Um, operations completely shut down for any kind of wildlife. So, for example, polar bear is denning up to have cubs. It would shut down mm -hmm. a million, two million dollar drilling operation. They just close it off until that animal's moved on or done what it's needed to do. So they are very, very in tune with the environment. There's also the the native entity of the people that own those properties too. They bring that to the forefront too. So it's it's a mutual thing between Big Oil, the North Slope Borough, and you know that's part of the deal with them allowing them to utilize those lands and uh, the partnership overall, it just demands a very high level of stewardship and, and caring about the environment and, and the people. Um, I've seen some really, they've basically remotely ran powerhouses running um, medium voltage cable for miles just to keep it away from a local village, people that don't want the extra lights or the sounds. And so they're willing to accommodate and they do. And, uh, you know, what, what they're perceived at from the local populace and the local popula population is very important. And so, yeah, they're always, always looking to that. That's like insane. I, I can't even imagine. I mean, here we think we're being extremely thoughtful when we're not flaring a certain way or if we're, you know, uh, just being careful or doing carbon capture, but you guys are literally stopping operations for polar bears. Like that is the most wholesome thing I've ever heard in this industry. So thanks for sharing that with us. I mean, that's, that's just such a interesting way of life and way of operations. Is, is there a lot of people on your team up there that aren't from the Alaska area or haven't been there long and find this to be odd and are like still getting used to it? Um, at this point, we're just, we just got a kind of some new, some new blood in. And so they're just starting to see some of this stuff. But, um, most of our guys have either lived in Alaska or now maybe they rotate. They might live in the Fort lower 48. They do, uh, basically three week hitches up here, but anybody that comes to Alaska, it's a serious culture shock. Um, it's, it's definitely, it's definitely very unique. And the challenges with it for like a technician are one of a kind. These guys are one man armies. They, they come up with a couple of basically portable handheld boxes and they show up on a job site and they do stuff that full service trucks do and uh, they do it remotely and they do it in extreme conditions. We're talking minus 50, minus 60, um, Everything you touch, your extension cords, stuff left out, they, they break. Everything takes a whole lot of time and a whole lot of skill. But, yeah, there's a huge learning curve for any of the new guys coming up. Um, typically, if they make it a year, mm, they'll probably last. So you're either in or out after yeah. a year. So. Mm -hmm. 
I, I don't know if I can make it a year in negative 60 degree weather. I, 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 I have so much respect for everybody who's capable of doing that. I sometimes I'm down here complaining that it's too hot because I'm, I'm in Houston, Texas, and I forget that there's a very opposite end of the spectrum going on in places like Alaska. Um, so that's, that's a very interesting thing to put myself in that headspace. And I can only imagine what our, our listeners are thinking as you're telling these stories. They're probably, some of them are getting excited, like, you know, maybe I want to go try working in Alaska. Um, what, what would you say to them? I mean, you know, if you're, if you're not scared of the cold weather, you love the beauty, you love to make good money. It's a great place to come and work. You can work your three weeks, have, you can have half the year off, make better wages than most people make in a year. And while you're up here too, they, they take care of you, accommodations, airfare back and forth, all your room and board. So when you're here and you do your shift, it's, it's a hundred percent pure profit. You take that check and you stuff it away and, and you can, some people go and they basically don't have a home. They go and travel for their three weeks. They meet up with friends. They go around the world. Um, other people, I've known of other, I know a lot of young people that have just stayed up and they would work uh, an extra hitch or two and they put that toward their, towards their home and they come out in their early 20s and they have a house that's paid for and they have a savings account and uh, it's a great way to get ahead. Uh, I got a son that's uh, just graduated college going into dental school. He's paid for himself by working those rotations in the summers and holidays, um, paid for that all himself and uh, doesn't have a student loan and uh there's a lot of opportunities. Alaska is the place. If you can show up and you're willing to work, that's really it. Anybody can really do good up here. And so it's not for everybody, but you know, if you're tough <laughs> and you think you're tough, this is a good place to find out. That's very cool. So speaking of like the different extreme conditions, there's what I've heard, the extreme daylight and then dark periods. And I'm assuming that could be challenging. Could you tell us a little bit more about how that affects your actual operations and some strategies you all have in place to manage the extreme light and dark? Yeah, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot that goes into that. And uh, the amount of light versus dark is different throughout the state. So as you get closer to that uh, above the Arctic Circle or the Arctic Ocean, that's where you see where they say 90 days of darkness or 90 days of daylight. Now, the rest of the state, the further south you go, it gets a little bit, a little more relaxed. We'll have five hours of daylight at the very least. So you're not living in dark, you know, 930, it's light out. 4.30 at night, it's getting dark. It's and, and it's just a short window. It starts switching as you go through solstice. You know, it's three to five minutes a day. So in 10 days, you've added an hour of daylight or subtracted it. So the way we kind of work in Alaska is we got summer, we got lots of light. We go super hard there. You got construction season, people fishing. We fish and recreate around the clock. And then here comes fall. We get past hunting season, which is now for the next couple months. And uh, people kind of hibernate for a little bit. And then you move into winter. And and uh, as that those days get longer, then people start going back out, doing the things they love outside to where you get to spring, where you have 12 hours of daylight. And you can be snowmobiling and skiing and cross-country skiing or snowshoeing. Man, it'd be 8 o'clock at night and be, you know, 50, 55 degrees out. So 
those are the those are the wide extremes. Uh, you know, people use mood lights. Lots of exercise is good. Uh, I tend to like to turn on the fireplace and make some home cooked meals. Make sure you're active, and uh, yeah, just try to find out the best way to deal with it. So it can be long, but. You got to love the outdoors and just you wear the good gear and you bundle up. And I mean, we go riding, sun, dark, whatever it is. I I saw that you also have a bit of a background in snowmobile racing. Speaking of snowmobiles, is that something you still actively do or is that more something you did in the past? Uh, no more racing. Uh, stop that here about. 12 years ago, um, 13 years ago, but, uh, nope, no more racing. Still do ride a lot. We, we ride in some of the, we ride on the foothills of Mount McKinley Denali. So you're actually on a sunny day. You're looking up at that riding around in four to eight feet of powder. So we do a lot of that, but no racing. Um, I haven't done that. I had a long career, 13 years of racing, a uh, very specialized kind of racing to cross country racing. So you would cover 200 miles nonstop and that would be two gas stops, 200 miles and typically about two hours. So about a hundred mile an hour average. And that would take you from the coast through the mountains on the river, across the tundra, and then back to your starting point basically. And, uh, super challenging, super fast. It's just like a two hour, two hour, very extreme ride and did that for a long time, but, uh, no longer still have a lot of friends that do. And a lot of friends from Nome that still do. So a lot of them run what's called the iron dog longest snowmobile race in the world. It actually goes, uh, over 2000 miles. If you can believe that. So that that's so far. Like I, I can't believe Goodness, I couldn't imagine doing that. You you've lived such an extreme life up there. I I love this for you. It's it just seems like you are doing the most with where you're at. Um, I wanted to bring it back around real quick to NC Power Systems and ask you a little bit. I think you kind of touched on it earlier, but if you could get a little bit more into the role that they play in Alaska's energy infrastructure and how companies like yours are supporting the operation of, you know, just energy production in the state. Yeah, I mean, you know, the cat product line is legendary. Um, in Alaska, you, you're you pretty hard-pressed to find any kind of industrial petroleum uh, mining facility that isn't primarily Caterpillar. So um, all of the drill rigs on the North Slope are all cat-powered. So there's a, there's a mandate for that. There's a mandate typically that says you have to maintain them to factor, you know, Caterpillar standards. So we have a deep involvement in, in all of the pieces and parts that are all moving to keep that all working. So we support that through um, Anchorage has the largest part stock in Northwest America of cat parts in our Anchorage facility. We have a state-of-the-art branch in Fairbanks that supports a wide magnitude of that part of the state. And then we have an actual branch in Prudhoe Bay. So that consists of a cat rental store, heavy rents, power systems, um, service, service repair, 
etc. Rotating text through there, and and that that facility kind of ramps up or down. And right now we're in the process of ramping up with what we have going on up there. But that's just kind of it. We have a support network that covers the state branches that uh, take care of that. Um, we have a branch, a power branch in in Dutch Harbor. Thirteen rotating techs there. Um, those would take care of some of the vessels as they head up that direction to support oil and gas. A lot of activity in a little bit of window when there's no ice in that ocean. So um, we're kind of handling a little bit of everything from the sea, um, everything on the ground and everything in between. So NC machinery, NC power systems, cat rental store. um, We're here. We've been here. Um, I think we've been in business over a hundred years. So um, yeah, we're here to support. That's awesome. Uh, well, I guess we're, we're just about to the end of our time. Is there anything else you wanted to share with us about Alaska, the energy scene, or any, any advice you have for our listeners who would maybe want to get into it one day or just want to learn more about the, the energy production up there? Uh, I mean, it's it's been going strong since the 70s. It'll continue to go strong with these new finds. Um, with these two biggest developments coming in, we're looking at uh, filling the pipeline back up another 30% or more. Um, we're here for the long term. If there's anybody that's you know loves the outdoors, loves hunting, fishing, the scenery, um, all that stuff, it's a great place to be. You come for a visit and then... Then you just don't leave. That's what happened. I came when I was 13 and here I am still sitting here and I don't, I don't plan on going anywhere else. It's one of a kind. So it's a great place, lots of opportunity, a great place to raise a family and enjoy the outdoors. That's great. Well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on today. It was a pleasure to have you. And guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of The Energy Pipeline. I will see you all next week. Come back next week for another episode of The Energy Pipeline, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. To learn more, go to OGGN.com.